I think that the opinion of the media in the last uh, few days has been that the so-called Windsor framework has been something of a, a political triumph for Rishi Sunak. And in fact, if we look at the um, at the coverage in papers, uh, you know, fairly mainstream liberal and uh, conservative papers, it's been presented as a, a great breakthrough, restoring uh, normal relations between United Kingdom and the European Union, and perhaps more importantly, opening up a possibility, it's claimed, for the restoration of devolved government uh, in Northern Ireland. There has been some uh, implicit criticism from the Express and the Mail sections of the Telegraph, um, and indeed some mutterings off from members of the ERG um, and other sort of Tory uh, uh, elements. But um, the general impression that you get has been that uh, that the agreement, or the, sorry, the framework, is uh, is a you know a new chapter in relations between the European Union and Britain, that in a sense, Brexit has now finally been done, or at least that's the view that Sunak is trying to portray. Now, I think that that's, the relations between the EU and Britain are only really one part of this story. And why uh, we entitled the talk Strategic Considerations is that unlike much of the commentary in this country, but uh, to a certain extent in Ireland too, the focus has really been on a narrow interpretation, both of the framework, but more important of the issues behind it. And the argument I'm going to put forward this evening is that actually we need to consider a number of dimensions of this framework and to think about a number of interrelated uh, political areas that would help us to make sense, both of its significance and maybe it's, maybe it's uh, future development as well. Um, for this purpose, I, the way I might define it is to think of it in terms of sort of three sets. If we think of a Venn diagram with the intersections, um, I would, would really define this as three sort of sets. One would be the politics of the north of Ireland. Secondly, the politics of Westminster. And then thirdly, and that's maybe an all-encompassing set that goes around them, but is also intersecting. Um, you've got to think of this as a 3D, um, maybe a 3D dialectical Venn diagram. And that is, of course, geopolitics, the relationship between Britain and the EU, the relationship of Britain with NATO. And, and then I think the, the, the question of wider geopolitics, for example, the, the United States um, continued war uh drive and its relationships with china and with its attempts to maintain its hegemonic position globally so those are really the facets of this um of this framework uh, a number of a number of commentators have sort of focused on that but i think that in general people have focused on one element or another rather than bringing in the whole picture just to uh, just to sort of cast your minds back as to why um, it was thought that uh, we needed some new framework document. Um, comrades who followed Northern Irish politics for any length of time will be aware that there are numerous framework documents, there are numerous agreements, and indeed uh, I've sort of rather lost track of them. Um, Hillsborough, St Andrews, 
Um, uh, you know, these are all uh, Good Friday Agreement, of course, as well. They, they come not in particularly rapid succession, but what they always do is to build on the previous um, uh, agreement or the previous framework. Indeed, this framework document is the third framework document in the history of the North of Ireland. And um, it again sort of builds on some of the elements in the protocol. Uh, if you remember, um, when Britain left the EU, um, there were a number of outstanding issues. And indeed, in the run-up to the 2019 general election, the, the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, concluded a very hastily um, reached agreement with the um, Southern Taoiseach, with the Irish Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar, um, at a hotel over the river from where I am now in the Wirral. And uh, this became known as the uh, Northern Irish Protocol. It dealt with a number of issues, um, in a sense, that were sort of hangovers from the main withdrawal uh, agreement. And these concern the operation of economic relations between uh, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, which was a member state or is a member state of the EU, and, uh, and Great Britain. By now, we should all be familiar with the, 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 the channels and the idea that goods entering Northern Ireland had to um, be subject to various checks, and that in particular, certain aspects of the economic life of Northern Ireland remained for within the European single market and also subject to uh, some of its customs and other arrangements, and in particular, uh, some of the rulings of the European Court of Justice. The argument uh, for this was, uh, was twofold. First of all, that the EU wanted to preserve its single market and therefore control entry of goods into and out of that said single market. But of course, unionists and others could legitimately claim that Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, it had left. So why, why should it be subject to the, um, the, the rules and regulations of the European Union and indeed its single market? Well. Arguments there did turn on a degree of economic reality. Uh, to a considerable extent, the, the economy of the North of Ireland is, I won't use the phrase integrated, but it's very closely linked to that of the rest of the island. And indeed, for certain production purposes, even things as mundane as the production of Guinness or dairy products, cheese and yogurt being two, that um, raw materials and items cross back and forth between the border. In other words, that if you're going to preserve control over the single market, then Northern Ireland, in many senses, has a, a, a very different relationship to a, a member state than, than other parts of the United Kingdom. And that was simply um, you know, an economic fact. Um, I won't, again, go into in, in detail about this, but some items might, before they were finished, might cross back and forth across that border three or four times. Um, and this would be particularly true for certain of the, the products which Northern Ireland was, was perhaps more famous for in, in agricultural and other products. But there were also, I think, political uh, factors there, one of which was not only the, um, the, the preservation of the single market, but I think as part of the negotiating uh, tactics of the EU, 
the aim to make Brexit as difficult as possible, in other words, not to encourage other member states to leave, meant that the actual, um, this was actually an issue that could, in a sense, be, you know, something of a, a cause celebre and illustrate the difficulties. There was also much talk at the time about wanting to, quote, avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. And this, um, this type of phraseology uh, seemed to suggest that placing customs posts uh, along the border um, would, in a sense, reinstate a militarized border, which um, had, had gone away, apparently. Now, in political terms, Northern Ireland remained in the United Kingdom, and in many other terms, that border still exists. So the focus on the border, I think, did have a sort of symbolic uh, and a, a very important political impact. Symbolic for, for many nationalists, and particularly, I think, for those who were trying to make the new dispensation in the North of Ireland work, that any form of um, overt control on that border would, in a sense, undermine the case uh, for the operation of the new dispensation, sorry, the new, the Good Friday uh, Agreement dispensation. But of course, significantly um, not enforcing that border and instead placing an economic border um, in the ports of Larne and Belfast would emphasize that Northern Ireland did not have the same economic relationship uh, to the rest of the United Kingdom. And, and for many unionists, this was again symbolically, but also politically a sign that the British state found uh, Northern Ireland um, eminently dispensable. So the um, UVF posters, which began, uh, which were up as the frontispiece to this talk, do express it quite well. And this was the idea, <coughs> pardon me, this was the idea that the protocol instituted some form of border in the in the Irish Sea, and that this practically and symbolically was the beginnings of British desertion of Northern Ireland. It also wasn't helped that um, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, in order to to secure this deal, uh, had in his usual political manner talked out of both sides of his mouth at the same time and had told unionists that there would be no um, strong economic controls, that would, there would be no custom checks. In other words, that you wouldn't notice this border. Now, of course, the, the operation of the, uh, of the protocol did institute customs checks. It did mean that goods going into Northern Ireland were subject to checks, which had not been the case before. It meant that, that lorries going between um, Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland were subject to checks that would not be the case when those lorries came up from England into Scotland. And so that was plainly uh, an issue. But also, I think it, um, it coincided with a number of political developments inside Northern Ireland itself, which I'll come back to in a moment. But union opposition was, I think, largely political. It was framed in terms of the economic disruption, for example, more documentation governing business and trading connections across the Irish Sea. But I think those are always overstated. And indeed, many of the employers and commercial bodies um, tended to downplay uh, these uh, disruptions. There were certain, um, certain specialist goods, certain specialist services, 
that were now subject to new checks. And indeed, many British companies, in order to avoid uh, the paperwork, stopped exporting goods to Northern Ireland altogether. Um, the great cause célèbre of um, Stilton cheese and Sayers delicatessen in, uh, I think, Fountain Street in Belfast was well known. Every time this issue was discussed, the British radio did a vox pop from the delicatessen of people complaining that they couldn't get their Stilton. Uh, there was also um, quite a, a push on the idea that British sausages were not going into Ulster. Um, and and uh, this again was a, you know, a great privation. Now, I don't want to downplay the, um, the economic significance of this, but I think it was largely political. And I think that it, it coincided with a number of specifically unionist interests, and in particular, some of the, the dynamics of Northern Irish politics. But I'm going to, going to return to those uh, a little later. So the, the, the protocol as it operated gave Northern Ireland uh, a, a different relationship to the EU single market, to aspects of its customs, and indeed gave um, a certain degree of uh, control and influence um, by the, uni the European Union, the European Court of Justice, over some aspects of economic life. Now, what the, um, what the framework document that's been agreed does is to meet some of those objections. And it meets them both by responding to some of the economic issues, but also some of the political issues raised by unionists. In, in place of uh, blanket checks on goods entering into Northern Ireland, these are now replaced by two channels. Uh, the so-called green and red channels, very similar to a customs channel. Green channel will be for goods which are going to remain in Northern Ireland. <coughs> Pardon me. Red channel for goods that might uh, leave Northern Ireland and go into the Republic of Ireland, into the EU single market. There would also be the ending of restrictions on the importation into Northern Ireland from Great Britain of certain agricultural products like seed, potatoes, various plants and so forth. Um, so again, that would be uh, would be a significant change. And also uh, under some aspects of state aid rules, VAT and other customs arrangements would no longer now be subject to EU rules. Those would, in a sense, return to the, the British norm, as it were. The um, the most politically important change, I think, is the um, the so-called uh, Stormont break. Now, this uh, this deals with a, a large or a very important unionist objection that uh, the politicians of Northern Ireland had no influence or control, and that indeed Northern Ireland, as the as the Unionist placard says at the beginning, was now subject to EU law. And what the, the Stormont break is, is a, an attempt to give some sort of consultative say. Now, I'm going to, it's still unclear whether this represents merely an expression of concern or whether it's a genuine veto. And I'll explain why there's, there's a problem with that in the moment. 
It means that if um, 30 or more MLAs, members of the Legislative Assembly, drawn from two parties, uh, want to raise an objection to an EU law, then they can do so and they can pass a, a petition. It's very much modelled on the current petition of concern, which uh, allows um, uh, an issue of considered of fundamental importance to quote one community to be in a sense presented into the public realm. Now, why the storm outbreak is so important is it does appear to answer unionist objections and it means that the um, authority of any EU legislation is now superseded by this veto. In other words, that the final say appears to rest with North the Northern Irish Assembly. But the actual status of this veto is unclear. Is it a veto? In other words, is it the Northern Ireland Assembly which has the final imprimatur? Very sorry, I have a bit of a cold at the moment, my apologies. Or does this veto, uh, can it only be expressed by the United Kingdom government, which of course could listen to what the Northern Ireland Assembly says, but is not bound by it. Moreover, this um, expression of concern, this petition can only be on what are regarded as major issues and again, that is something that could be subject to, to judicial review. In other words, it appears to give a, a veto to the unionists, but it may or may not do so. And indeed, looking at relations between London and Belfast, as it were, it's very clear that um, a London government will act in its interest rather than any perceived interest uh, in, in the north of Ireland. Also, how far in this uh, in this Stormont break, how far the role of the European Court of Justice extends? Uh, this again has become an important sort of symbolic uh, feature for both the Tory Brexiteers and uh, and the, the Democratic Unionists. The idea that an unelected or a foreign power has influence over a part of the United Kingdom obviously is uh, you know anathema to them. So there are some grey areas, and indeed one of the reasons why the DUP can, in a, or, and the ERG for that matter, can claim that they they need to really look at this is that there is this ambiguity in that in that sense. The other sort of ambiguity is that if we look at the documentation coming from the European Union, as opposed to the documentation coming from uh, Great Britain, sorry, from the United Kingdom. Uh, we do find some slight differences of emphasis, which I do not think uh, are entirely accounted for by translation problems. Indeed, uh, since English is still an official language of the EU, uh, it's not like we're talking to Americans where we're um, two different peoples, uh, you know, are divided by a common language. Um, it looks to me like there is really quite a, a deliberate ambiguity. Uh, and indeed, this is pretty well par for the course in Northern Ireland, given that the whole conception of constructive ambiguity is really how the politics of that region are framed. So there are still there are still sort of areas that are not clear, but it's very it, it is very clear that the the Windsor Protocol has given a number of concessions to to Britain, but 
the overall relationship, I think, in terms of the operation of this uh, single market in Northern Ireland still remain, I think, substantially the same. Um, the, other, the other issue, I think, which um, perhaps also should be borne in mind, partly, I think, because of specific economic interests, uh, but also, I think, because of the way that the politics of Brexit play out in the north of Ireland, is that the nationalist population have generally adopted a pro-EU position. In this, they reflect, I think, the, 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 the Irish population south of the border, which has a much more positive view. The Irish ruling class is pretty firmly committed to the uh, European project. And their, um, their, their partners north of the border, the nationalist politicians north of the border, have a similar sort of view. Much of this is, and, and this is particularly true in terms of Sinn Féin, uh, much of this is predicated that the EU could be um, some form of structure which would enable uh, a form of reunification to occur, economic and social dynamics would in a sense melt the border away. Indeed, when, um, when, when the Good Friday Agreement was being discussed in the 1990s and after as well, there was an argument that the border was in a sense superfluous in what was now a developing all-Ireland economy. So with the unionists in a sense taking a fairly clearly pro-Brexit position, and with nationalists taking uh, hostility to Brexit and indeed uh, a certain enthusiastic or at least a verbal commitment to the EU, the dynamics of Northern Irish politics, I think, you know, can be framed around Brexit uh, in this way. However, other sort of currents of opinion also have to be taken account of inside Northern Ireland itself. And those are that there are sections of the unionist population um, who voted for Remain, and indeed um, sections of the Ulster Union, Unionist Party, another major Unionist Party, are uh, you know pragmatically in favour of remaining in the European Union. And it's also very clear that even even some people who politically are Unionists do have economic interests in the development of closer economic relations with. With, with the rest of the island and indeed with the EU. So there isn't a simple mapping uh, in this way, but what it does mean uh, for, for the purposes of framing is an assumption that, uh, that unionists are you know, fairly strong supporters of Brexit and that nationalists are opponents of it. And that I think has you know, colored much of the debate and above all, much of the coverage. The other feature that we have to take into account in terms of Northern Irish politics is, of course, that in recent elections, most notably the last uh, assembly election, the unionist vote has fallen. Now, this is much less, I think, um, an, an absolute fall in the numbers of people voting unionist, but more a reconfiguration within the unionist bloc. Put, put very simply, um, much of the demographic data suggests, and again, I'm going to use the language of the census, it is open to question, but we'll, we'll take it as read for the moment, that 
the demographic structure of Northern Ireland is um, is changing. In other words, that uh, the um, it's likely that within uh, within probably five years that there will be a very clear Catholic majority already amongst uh, school children and in the young age cohorts. A majority of the population can be defined or define themselves as Catholic. Um, and of course, that's then reflected in, in the political decline of unionism. And that decline has also seen um, growth of two sort of factors. One has been the growth of uh, a more intransigent unionist party, the traditional unionist voice led by Jim Allister, and the growth of softer unionism, either in the form of the Ulster Unionist Party, or, and that this is this is perhaps an interpretation that certainly most in the British media don't take, but uh, a softer form of unionism in the form of the Alliance Party, which is often designated by the BBC as non-sectarian or cross-community. Those of us who have been following Northern Ireland politics for about 50 or 60 years or so will be familiar with the phrase, the largely Catholic SDLP, the Cross Community Alliance Party, and the hardline DUP, um, and so on. And we these sort of designations have a certain value. But it's very clear that the, the, the DUP, which became the majority uh, unionist party in the early 2000s, feels itself very much under pressure. Um, Remember that the DUP did not support the Good Friday Agreement. It maintained opposition to that agreement. And although its leader, Ian Paisley, went into this power-sharing government with Martin McGuinness, it um, always retained this sort of image as the, this, the sort of harder line in that way. So electorally, it feels itself under threat. And indeed, its uh, support for Brexit, it was a very strong supporter of Brexit, very closely allied to the Brexit campaigners in Britain, particularly in the right wing of the Tory party, was always more, I think, about showing up its hardline unionist position uh, in, in Northern Ireland. The other emerging factor, of course, is the growth of nationalist political parties and of the Alliance Party, which has now become this third force, which is in a sense eaten into the, the center ground. There are considerable debates about the nature of that vote, but it certainly, I think, does reflect a softening of the unionist vote. And of course, the last assembly elections led to that horror of horrors, as far as many hardline unionists are concerned. Uh, Sinn Féin became the largest party, and um, they, um, they, they would be, if the uh, assembly and indeed the devolved executive was up and running, they would be the, Sinn Féin would be the first minister. Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin would be the first minister. And it would mean that the DUP as the second largest unionist party would, be, would have the deputy first minister. So you can see the psychological and political problem that all of the symbolism of unionist decline, all of the pushing, in a sense, uh, of nationalists to gain a better position inside the northern state, all of the um, concessions that had been made in the Good Friday Agreement were now, uh, many unions here, coming home to roost. 
And this, I think, is what underpins much of the DUP's collapsing of the Assembly, its reluctance to get the Assembly up and running, its reluctance to go into government, is that it will be playing second fiddle. And uh, it will be clearly a sign, I think, that, that, that unionism's electoral position and its demographic position is under threat. So the um, refusal to go into government and to use the, the nature of the Northern Ireland Protocol is an excuse in some senses, but it also, I think, is, is part of this wider symbolism, this wider political problem that unionism faces. It also is part, I think, of their sense of, of you know, and I, I don't use this lightly, but existential insecurity in that they're, um, you know, for much of the May government, they were in a strong position. They, with the, with the confidence and supply uh, position, they were able to extract concessions from Theresa May's government. And likewise, um, they went along with Johnson uh, only in a sense to be shafted um, uh, with, with, by the protocol. And there's now a period of some re recrimination in the DUP about the way that they trusted British politicians. But of course, that's a persistent theme in unionism. Um, we only have to go back to Edward Carson in 1921, who talked about the way that unionists were used by the Conservatives. And of course, the, the, you know, the, the unionists of Northern Ireland will be continued to be used by the British state all the time it suits their interests. So those are the dynamics within Northern Ireland itself. And the Windsor framework is alleged to have sort of dealt with some of those unionist objections. And um, it's sort of been framed as getting devolved government up and running. Um, and some of the points I'm referring to there hint at maybe the difficulties of getting devolved government up and running. Um, but again, we'll perhaps look at that when we come to look at the next sort of battleground, as it were, which is, of course, Westminster politics. Um, when I began, I said that Sunak had had quite a good week, as it were, and he certainly received a lot of uh, media praise and um, you know, he really is, it's argued, can now do nothing wrong. For the more optimistic Tories, this is the rebooting of the uh, Conservative government. This is the, the sign of the new competent uh, technocratic uh, government, and that in comparison with the blustering um, uh, Johnson, the man who could come up with a good phrase but couldn't really spend more than two minutes looking at a policy briefing. Sunak is sober, he's focused on detail, he's the man who can get things done. And many of them believe that this is actually a chance to, um, you know, to, to perhaps turn things around uh, for the Tories at Westminster. Um, so the, the framework has been bigged up in this way. But of course, Sunak does have some political problems and also some political uncertainties. One of them, of course, is the reaction of his own party. Um, to date, other than a Boris Johnson um, uh, rather rambling speech uh, in which he indicated that he would find it hard to support the agreement, there hasn't been much of a coherent response. Uh, indeed, a couple of the more prominent um, Brexiteer Tories were involved um, either as uh, ministers in Northern Ireland Chris Heaton-Harris, 
Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is a, a long-term Brexiteer, as is um, Steve Baker, a junior minister, one of the leaders of the ERG. And they were brought firmly on board with the deal. And indeed, uh, even today, Keaton Harris is out and about um, telling unionists about the various details of this agreement. So the ERG's uh, opposition has, I think, been rather muted. It's gone away to consult um, Star Chamber of Lawyers, a rather unfortunate phrase, but um, that's the one they use. Um, the Star Chamber is looking at the details and is coming up with a response. The fact that Sunak has brought into the cabinet uh, ERG supporters and indeed more hardline Brexiteers does seem to suggest that he's brought them inside the tent. Um, I won't entirely repeat LBJ, but everybody knows what I mean by that phrase. And that it's better to have Suella Braverman inside the government uh, rather tamed than I have, having her outside as a sort of standard bearer for opposition. Um, Johnson and Rhys Margot are, are already on manoeuvres doing that. But it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't look as if the rebellion of Tories is going to be in any way really significant. Um, and this, I suppose, reflects the, the wider interests of, of British capitalism that was always opposed um, in, you know, in some of its key sections, was always opposed to Brexit and really wants some sort of rapprochement economically and politically with the European Union. And I, I think that the, 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 the Brexiteer tendency, as it were, uh, the opportunistic tendency, whatever phrase we want to use about them, um, has been really sidelined in this. So it's, if, we, if we factor in Labour support, along with the general acquiescence of, uh, of the Tories, it's likely that uh, Sunak can get this through and that um, you know, there won't be any major problems. As for the DUP, it has MPs at Westminster. Uh, two of them have um, uh, come out in opposition to the deal in various forms, Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley Jr. And Lord Dodds, who's a former leading uh, figure in, in the DUP parliamentary delegation, has also come out in opposition to it. Um, like, um, like the ERG, they're taking their time to look at the details and trying to work out the best position. Um, it's, it's clear again that, that there is substantial opposition from unionists. Alistair of the TUV has um, roundly condemned the protocol and has said that if we agree to it, not only do we still remain under EU laws, but we will go back into government with a Sinn Féin first minister to boot. Uh, Alistair's always much more overt in his opposition to Sinn Féin. He lets the cat out of the bag, but he, I think his, you know, reveals pretty well what uh, more hardline unionists are saying. It's still unclear what sort of line they will take. It's known, for example, that many of the assembly members for the DUP want to return to government, arguing that there are pressing problems which can only be dealt with by the return of devolved government. And of course, um, aware that, um, that their position, in a sense, will be the worst of both worlds, that they won't be hard line enough to appease the TUV, 
but on the other hand, they will get the blame for um, disrupting uh, budgets, health service changes, cost of living measures, and so on and so on, if they stay out. So as I said, they're, they're, they're clearly in a bind in that way. But, but Sunak does appear, I think, to have uh, seen off the potential opposition, and he's very much, I think, in control of that. Um, and so we can see the agreement going through. Um, there are still, you know, areas that need to be worked out. You know, the old cliches, I'm afraid, express it very well. The devil's in the detail. Um, you know, we will just have to see how it emerges and so on. The usual sort of line, but I think it is quite accurate. And one of the points about the, the political nature of this is that both the, the UK and the EU will, I think, um, make it work as well as they want to make it work and indeed need to make it work. And if the bigger pressing political problems can be addressed or indeed need to be addressed, then these smaller problems can, can be ignored and indeed can be put to one side. So what I want to just conclude on is, is the bigger picture. The one that in a sense determines the politics of individual nation states and indeed I think you know globally and this of course is the differing relationships with inside both Europe, the European Union, NATO and of course the geopolitics involving the United States. One of the points that was made by Ursula von der Leyen when she spoke uh, um, at the press conference was that the relationship between the EU and Britain needs to be understood in the changes that have occurred in the world. And those changes are most clearly not only the war in Ukraine, but the shifting geopolitical emphasis by many European states. It's uh, about a decade ago since everybody was undergoing a new golden age with China, um, Older, older viewers will remember charming pictures of David Cameron and Xi um, with pints of beer in a Cotswolds pub. And it was uh, in, um, George Osborne talking about a new golden age, a new relationship. But of course, all that's gone now with Tory MPs demanding that China be seen as the new threat, that the Confucius Institutes in the universities are little more than sort of Chinese centers of influence, almost like sort of Chinese cells, cancers in our universities, um, you know, trying to spread Chinese influence. China is now being defined as a threat. And of course, alongside this is the, uh, is the war in Ukraine and the definition of the geopolitics that, that underpin that. The need for Western unity in fighting that war, the role of NATO, the role of Britain within NATO, all I think are, are very clearly uh, in the mix. We know that um, the American president and indeed uh, American officials were very keen on securing this, this uh, framework uh, document of restoring some form of normal relationships and then they, they did this for a variety of reasons. I mean, some of them are, um, you know, clearly related to the internal politics of the United States. The Irish-American lobby always finds it useful 
I think, to, to sort of mobilize around these issues and supporting a framework which sort of restores some sort of normality and also might return devolved government, uh, you know, again, is something worthy of support. But I think more importantly, the idea that this was an outstanding issue which was interfering with normal relations in a period of, of profound crisis when these relations should be tidied up, should be brought more closely together. There's also, I suppose, the, um, the, the other issue, certainly from the British perspective, of a potential trade deal with the United States. And this was dangled, I think, during the negotiations. Likewise, um, the need for the City of London and financial services to have a, a more secure set of relationships, and indeed the British economy more generally, to have secure relationships with the EU. And then, of course, on top of that, in the purely European context, the issues of migration, uh, the, the so-called small boat invasion, and the need to cooperate with the French and with other European countries. So there were a number of, of, of much smaller uh, political issues, which then link into this bigger geopolitical um, uh, you know, picture. And I think it is important to also consider that um, certainly in terms of the current admin American administration, consolidating Europe behind the American project, particularly of um, reducing the potential alternative source of power, as it were, no pun intended in terms of Germany and Nord Stream, but a, a specific German orientation towards Russia that had to be curtailed, likewise bringing into line other uh, elements such as in Italy and in, um, in, in Hungary all meant this uh, this coalescence. And I, I see this type of strategic pattern as being very significant. And of course, it's, it is one of the fundamental defining features of our period, um, the, uh, the orientation towards a, a particular potential conflict with, uh, with China and the immediate focus on Ukraine, rallying Europe, rallying NATO, and coalescing uh, uh, around that war. And these outstanding issues were problems which got in the way of that. So if we take this deal, we can see its importance on a number of different levels. Quite how the deal will work out and uh, indeed wh which direction it will go, and I think is still uncertain. Uh, the one that I'm perhaps most certain of is that the relations between the UK and the EU will become more stable. It will, I think, um, you know, there will be some form of rapprochement. One that will, I think, actually be uh, exacerbated by Keir Starmer. He won't rejoin the single market, but certainly all of those tendencies that we've seen already will be fully in play in a future Labour government. Um, we also know that the tendencies in the United States, uh, particularly to want uh, that type of stability and also to consolidate American control and influence over NATO and over Europe to bring them into line, as it were, to line up the ducks. That is certainly very clear in terms of the Democrats. Um, I, see that, I see that Daniel's here this evening, so maybe you can comment on how far Republicans would differ in this, and indeed 
you know, we're now starting to get towards primary season or beginnings of that next year. And um, how far, um, you know, Republicans will take an anti-war position. Uh, will they, for example, move back towards isolationism? And again, is this a case of getting this deal done now uh, and in, with a different context, with a different type of Republican president, whether America would take the same line? Uh, certainly in terms of Brexit, the sections of the British Tories were much closer to Trump than they were to the uh, Democrats. And I think this, again, gives us a, something of a perspective on the way that this might operate. The area which also remains unclear in terms of strategic considerations is, of course, Northern Ireland itself, which is where we began and where I'll end. Um, and what I think we have to really think about there is that the the DUP is in a bind. I've used that cliche several times already. Its bind, I think, is one in which it has to, uh, in a sense, decide uh, whether it's prepared to work with um, with nationalists and to, in a sense, preserve this very unstable status quo or whether it decides finally to break from it. I think it's strategic and indeed its political interests still remain in trying to make the communalized politics of the Northern Ireland work. But of course, the North of Ireland, even, even when those politics are structured through so-called power sharing, are in many ways managing conflict rather than resolving it. And this, this deal is in a, yeah, another part of the process of management rather than resolution. And of course, when you've got a, a democratic imperative towards the reunification of the island, and you've, you've then got the idea of maintaining partition, it's very clear that, that these things are in contradiction to each other. So this is an, this is an attempt to sort of put that fundamental contradiction to one side and try in a sense to pretend that there isn't a border when there is in constitutional terms, try to pretend that there's an all-island economy when there isn't quite, and above all, to, to try in a sense to diffuse the idea of the, the future of the island into this continuation of power sharing. The DUP probably, uh, I think, will um, stay out of uh, power sharing for uh, you know, the foreseeable future. There are some council elections coming up and they certainly will be under threat from uh, the TUV in those elections. I think to go back into government and maybe to be betrayed as selling the pass uh, means that it's probably advisable that they stay out. Um, but I think that really they will have to consider you know, after that, whether they can go back in and again attempt to extract more concessions. The options open to them are fairly limited. Um, if they do, in a sense, attempt to collapse these institutions, there's no guarantee that Westminster will, will act in anything favorably, uh, would act in any way favorable to them. And their, their ability to mobilize large crowds of people to mobilize large forces 
I think that that bluff was called in the 1990s. Indeed, I think that bluff was called in the 1980s and it was shown to be very limited. So they, I think, have, have got to decide what their strategy is. But I, I think for the, at, at least for the next few months, they stay out. But of course, as I've said, Northern Ireland is unstable. It's inherently unstable, um, as indeed are the geopolitics. So although our focus has been on Northern Ireland, I think that we have to see it as one small local crisis that reflects geopolitics and shows the way that world politics, I think, are now very closely related and that we can no longer, not that we ever really could, put things into a sort of internal box and a foreign policy box, a box that was for big geopolitical themes and then the local pork barrel. You know, this is an in, this is um, a case when the gunpowder barrel and the pork barrel are very closely uh, linked together. So that's uh, that's my introduction, comrades. Um, a minute or two over, but uh, I hope you will indulge me.